Hi, everyone. Here's another great episode of Be Heard Women Empowering Women. And today I have Catherine Jansen Burkett, which I hope by not saying it right, she'll correct me. <laughs> and she has published a book. Well, her first book was River to Ocean Living in the Flow of Wakefulness. But um, she is someone that has been through things like a lot of us have been through and come out the other side, let's put it that way. So at, we're, before we get too deep into the topic, I'll let Catherine kind of introduce herself and tell us a little bit about herself. Catherine. Uh, well, thank you for having me, Mimi, and hello to all of your listeners. Uh, I'm excited to be here. I love women empowering women. Um, and yes, as we, many of us do, sometimes it's dramatic. Sometimes it's not seemingly as dramatic, but we're on a human journey. And mine um, started in a way um, when my parents split in my early teenage years. And then that didn't hit until maybe later teenage years, kind of the tsunami of that trauma. But at that point, um, just a pretty intense crisis, a suicide attempt, dropping out of high school to where I am today in my life at 60 years old with a happy 33-year marriage and children and grandchildren and a healthy body and really meaningful work. I became a therapist uh, as a second career uh, a couple of decades ago. So yeah, I I wouldn't actually change anything for where I've what I've been through and where I've been because it all serves who I am today. But I'm glad to be on that other side, as you said in your intro. Right, I totally relate to everything you're saying because, like a lot of us, um, my childhood was not a storybook childhood at all. Uh, alcoholic father, cold mother, a lot of things, um, and taught not shown my worth. You know, I remember if I came home from school and said, oh, I got an A in this or whatever. And they'd say, don't blow your own horn. Like, yeah. we were really like put down yeah. for that, you know. But also, <clears throat> whether we realize it or not, there's some core beliefs that get instilled because of the way our parents reacted to things in our life. We don't even realize the programming that's going on until mm -hmm. we become young adults. And I too had uh, suicidal ideations of my my life um, before I had children, and I was just making the wrong choices. And I know what that darkness feels like. Yeah. And then the abusive relationships I was in, I didn't know at the time. I couldn't figure it out. You know what what, what I was doing wrong, or why I was getting involved with all these wrong men. Um, and you're right. There's a reason for everything. You don't see it when you're in it. But then later on when you get out, if, if and when, and I think everybody can get out of that darkness and get right back on the path that you're meant to be on, okay? Yeah. Because I think you know at an early age what you want to do. And if you get stifled like I did, sometimes it gets put on the back burner for many years. Yeah. You know? yeah. So with... um. Those old beliefs, you know, we have those old beliefs. What do you think yeah. about that? Well, yes. And I mean, I started, I, my father who uh, was, you know, the perpetrator of the trauma, but then really was part of the healing journey because he was alcoholic and what we didn't know at the time left to drink, but he actually said to my sister and I, the remaining 
daughters at home. Um, I just don't want to do family. So the the what you speak of in terms of the petri dish of our childhood is where psychologically our sense of self happens. And so our sense of self is deeply beholden to our circumstances. And as children do, we take everything personally. So he didn't leave because I wasn't worth staying for, but that's not what my little brain made up. I just, it didn't matter enough. I didn't matter enough. And they say, don't compete with God and don't be, don't compete with substance because uh, you won't win and, and addiction. And so even though it's a great story because he got into AA and did before he passed 29 years of AA, he did his amends, but the, the damage was done. And I didn't know also because he said he was sorry. And I processed that with him that I really was walking around with what I didn't understand unworthiness was masked through perfectionism, for example, or not having a sense of belonging was really an anxious attachment to always never feeling fully tethered to those who love me and I love, Um, not always feeling lovable. So when you speak of like fraught relationships, you know, we basically create an outer world that's a reflection of our inner world. So if I don't love me, Or if I do not believe I deserve love, then I'm not going to create and manifest that kind of life. So it is now as a therapist, because my first career was in public health, but now as a therapist, really helping people not just reduce their anxiety and depression or or look at the symptoms, but get to what drives some of that symptomology. And And a fractured sense of self is so often, so often, at least in the mix, if not the core piece to work with. Um, and that's actually one of my first aspect of my book is is befriending you, which is to have in the human part of our, I believe, spiritual journey to have an actual relationship to ourselves and and restore it to its original intact worthiness, lovability, right. and interconnectedness. Well, yeah. we're, you know, we're really um, a lot of research is being done that even in the womb, that the fetus feels what's going on. So if the mother is angry all the time or stressed out, the fetus feels that. So our, our core beliefs, some people think even start that early, you know? Or like you say, epigenetics is looking at kind of the download of especially stress energy, like to each nervous system that's getting downloaded, um, not just eye color. Yeah. So it is exciting to really help people, um, be not so confused when they really, they go for that run or they try to get a good job and, and they're not happy and they're, and they don't feel fully okay and, and whole and healthy. And so um, those are, those are helpful things to kind of lift the veils. And then the other thing, of course, Mimi, that's so exciting. When I went into being the career of psychotherapy, the research was not there around neuroplasticity. It was kind of like, no, you have the brain you have and good luck, you know, try to heal, try to grow in the self-help movement. Now we we can grow a new brain. It doesn't, you know, you can't do it in a day. You can't build Rome in a day, nor build a new brain in a day. But that is so hopeful. That is not something a 16 year old was told. It was just like, I've just got to learn how to not be in the darkness and fight for a life worth living for. But I didn't really understand that my system could, could come back um, in the way. um, Our stories are a little similar. My dad got sober at 60. Okay, Mm -hmm. and everybody loved him in AA because he had a charming personality when he wanted it. And I got sober when I was 40. 
Now, you know, there's the steps you do and the resentments you have. And my sponsor told me, write a list of resentments for your father because you absolutely have to get rid of this. You know, the list is like two pages. <laughs> Everything he ever did. And um, the one day I wasn't speaking to him for a while. And one day I was in his presence just by the stroke of luck now I realize. And I had to use the phone and he said to me, um, you know, I love you. And I said, maybe that's not enough. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you never made amends to me because he's in the program. He knew what I was talking about. Yeah. He said, well, we could do it right now. I said, wait, I went in my pocket. I have to list with me. And I gave it to him. And he said, do you want me to read it now? I said, no, no, I just want to give it to you. Now, he never made a formal amends. But for me, I let go of resentment. Yeah, you got to. Well, he took responsibility and you got in. I, one of the, um, so I, I do a lot of couples work, but I also do other forms of like adult siblings, um, friendships sometimes, uh, in all relationships, you know, the foundation other than obviously sexual intimacy come down to some foundational pieces of health. And the idea that when, even if somebody is accountable and feels remorse, the piece of repair that doesn't get addressed usually, and I don't mean this religiously, but is atonement. How do I make this right? So when people feel like you said you're sorry, why don't I trust you yet? Or why don't I feel fully healed? It's that piece. So I have three models because as I worked with people, I realized there were just um, like my communication model, my repair model, my collaboration model, people need actual structural tools mm-hmm. to navigate that kind of thing. So it's always, you know, cause forgiveness is also part of the journey of when we're injured and we injure others that at some point we don't, we need, it needs to be done. We need to not carry that in the body and the heart. That's but again, it's hard to forgive if somebody hasn't done that step of how do I make this oh. right? And ultimately it's about rebuilding trust. So yeah, that repair, um, I'm glad you got a portion of it for sure. I did. And I, I was very glad because I had been in one group. Um, I did a lot of work on myself when I got sober. I, I did a lot of therapy. And I even went away twice more besides rehab when I thought I needed really a little more work. And I remember one man, one young man in our group who was not, in a good relationship with his father and his father died. And I remembered him saying, whatever you do, don't let a parent die in that type of a situation where you don't have a relationship with them, not even speaking to them. He said, it's horrible. And that helped me forgive my father. Well, that, that yeah. And what I, I would say too, um, and I had a different kind of complicated relationship with my mom. I'll tell um, clients, you know, at some point, if if the order of death goes as it generally does, you will be standing at that funeral and you will need to be right with yourself. So whatever your good daughtering or good sonning or whatever you need now may be different than if you have siblings, it's not about comparison. It's not competitive. You've just got to, because you will obviously never have another opportunity to make different choices. So maybe it's that you needed a more boundary relationship. Maybe it's that you needed to forgive. Maybe you needed to be more active. Mm-hmm. Um, it's tough for people when parents aren't able to really do a lot of work or take responsibility, but you, but 
one does not want to sever the relationship, but then also we don't want to hang out and just talk about the weather and be superficial. So that those are trying to help people really find an authentic and real, but obviously not complete kind of connection in terms of we're going to all the rabbit holes and finishing all the unfinished business. Um, And, and usually people are just so happy, you know, and there's, you know, Underneath all the woundedness, often there's love that just never has a chance to really come fully forward. Let's talk about a little bit about things we're talking about here, but um, forgiveness. So forgiveness of others, and then there's self-forgiveness. Um, I have forgiven myself, I think, 99% of everything I might have done, um, especially when I was drinking. You know, I have children and um, I have told them that. And and it's odd about perspective because the one daughter is like, you're fine. You're a good mother, blah, blah, blah. And the other daughter is like, mm-hmm. and, they, and, you know, I used to get hurt by that. And I, I said to the one daughter, why did she see it differently? She grew up in the same house, <laughs> you know, as you did. But there you go. Um, whatever her woundedness came from, it might not all have been because of me. But a lot of times um, what I heard from a therapist was sometimes people need to have a villain in their life. Have you ever heard that? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so <clears throat> the mother is someone usually that no matter what you do or say, they will never leave you, which is true. So it's in the, yeah. Yeah. So all of a sudden I become a villain. Well, and I, the, um, easy scapegoatness. I'm both a mom and a stepmom or the, but yet we also, you know, have to own our stuff. I mean, if we want a, cause now these are adult relationships. If we want a true relationship with our adult children, I mean, how wonderful to have an open invitation to say and be approachable and, and they need to be skillful in their approach. I would offer to say, this really affected me. This was really hard for me. I couldn't talk to you about it at the time. Um, I tried to do all that while I was raising at least some of my kids, um, you know, because I met my older children through my marriage and and they, some of them, I mean, Dylan, my oldest was 11. So he, yeah, we had a little bit of time, but to try to be approachable through the process, because of course, mothering, parenting is fallible because we're human, uh, but to have a chance for ch- kids in real time to, to be able to sort that, but the, um, you know, it kind of circles back to the sense of self. If I have a fragile sense of self, if you come to me and you're my daughter, maybe, and I have injured you, the organic response is going to defend and deflect that because I'm going to have shame potentially. Mm -hmm. But if I've done my work around my relationship to me, my fallibility is sitting right along with my worthiness and my lovability. So when you say I have you, I have hurt you. I have a space I can hold for that without attacking myself. And so our own approachability, I I will say that to people that you can't really get away with not having a relationship to yourself, a full one and a whole one and a healed and healing one. If you want the potential best relationship with others, I would say, because, you know, we bump into each other as human beings and we need to be able to navigate those ruptures and those disappointments and and be able to be transparent as part of being authentic and having deeper intimacy. And my minister was talking about something Sunday um, 
relationship, the power of relationship, and um, the fact that when someone is um, upset with you or treating you not nice or whatever, take yourself out of the equation and think this person might be shutting down. This person might be having things going on you don't even know about, okay? So take you out of it. Don't make it about you, which really helped me a lot with that one relationship, thinking it's my fault, it's my fault. She's not talking to me, you know. Right, right. Well, and the in the world of attached relationship, which is a, a fairly new idea, especially culturally, um, that staying with somebody, even if they need to go through their process of I'm mad and protest or I need to differentiate and not taking everything so personally, that was a way even with my mother I needed to do because she would have a sharp tongue and she tended to be um, mean. Actually, she would just insult me and it would be odd. Not my, my sister didn't have as much of that. I don't know what ultimately I never figured out what that was about. So I just set some pretty clear boundaries, but her way of being with my sisters meant they just kind of more distanced from her. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't do that. I, I chose a different path, but I held her to a higher standard. And she would complain, like, I just need to be so careful around you. It's like, well, you just need to be nice. You don't have to be careful. You just need to be kind. You don't. And I'm going to see you regularly and I'm going to stay with you, but I'm going to stay with myself and not allow mm-hmm. what I, I didn't understand over earlier years was also, again, so interest. There was my father's leaving, but there was the way my mother at times would interact with me. And I just think she was a trauma survivor. I also know she loved me deeply. She did. She truly didn't mean to hurt me, but she didn't have enough of a sense of self to ever kind of make it right. And so, mm-hmm. you know, this relationships are such a uh, avenue for personal growth and awareness, spiritual practice, mm-hmm. um, many, many things. Not always fun while you're going through the process. Yeah. no. Not always, you know, this is why I wrote my first book, um, Raised by Wolves, Trapped by Demons, because my brother would always say, we're being raised by wolves, you know, because Mm. we just did not get appreciation or affection or any of that, you know, and um, Trapped by Demons, well, that was, I took, that came out with the men that I picked, you know, so. I went into, uh, I did research and I, I now know why I did every single thing I did those first 40 years of life. Yeah. Good for you. So now that it's in a book, it's like, I don't want to say it an instruction manual, but for women that might be in a domestic um, situation, maybe a violent one, which I was at one time, they can read that book and see how awful it was, how dark it became, how I finally had to reach, I call it a bottom in my soul, you know, that I I could say, you know what? Just what you said. I have to love myself. Right. Maybe I love this man and I, I'm always forgiving him. But maybe I should be loving myself. And that was the final Yeah, not mistake. That was kind of turn in the making of mistakes. I I love that. And, you know, so many things get righted. And in that journey of restoration of 
coming back to who we really are and our core sense of self again at this human level and and using those traumas and injuries and losses as fodder for growth and we are actually deeper and different um, because of those experiences not that we would want suffering for children or certainly abuse or trauma um and so when i you know somebody again will come in and it's like i need boundaries in my life it's like well okay i we can have a conversation about what inner boundaries look like what outer boundaries look like they happen to be two different things um but why you don't have boundaries is really the more compelling conversation and once you write that which again like you're saying Mimi is about i don't deserve to have boundaries you just start seeing aspects of you even see people take care of their bodies differently yeah, self-talk is different. Um, they choose differently in terms of relationship to other intimate or otherwise, even friendships. Um, once again, we have that solidly sense of self-love and self-respect. And very sadly in our culture right now, there's there used to be ideas of selfishness. Now the word narcissism is used a lot. So I have to really work to help people not think it's that. Um, that if I have a relationship to myself, that doesn't mean I'm some kind of narcissist. And what I say is actually people, if you truly have a true relationship with yourself, everyone wins because the love for yourself, the cup runneth over. There will be a generosity of love almost all the time. And you if know, someone is not open to receive that, again, take yourself out of the equation yeah. because it has to do with their journey. That's right. That's and that right. was really hard for me to do. Yeah. Um, what do you think of, like, when you think of the phrase intrinsic self-worth, like, what does that bring up for you? Well, that is exactly the phrase I used in my book. Uh, we live in Western culture or, you know, not just on the side of the world, but in Western cultures, there tends to be an individualism, a sense of self that's based on proving oneself. Um, and scarcity and insecurity. And so one of the things I, I mean, intrinsic is intrinsic. So no matter what you ever did or didn't do, Mimi, you're, you either have it or you don't, it means you can't move it. It's not, I, so when people come in and say, oh, I have better self-esteem now, it doesn't change. It's you have a, a better awareness of your intrinsic worth because that every day is I don't have to then prove myself, which is huge for some of us. Now, so I have a life that I'm very proud of based on a lot of proving oneself because I achieved a lot. I mean, I have two master's degrees. I mean, from a high school dropout to and being told by my father, I would either be in jail or a mental institution. And, you know, it's like, well, that actually ended up helping me probably, although it was not a healthy parenting thing to say. Um, that intrinsic piece settles the system. It doesn't mean I'm not going to get an A, but my whole reason for getting an A in a class is because I want to actually go on to this college because that's a life experience I want, not because that moves the dial of worth. Yes. So I could sit with the Dalai Lama or I could sit with a homeless person. Mm -hmm. I am no more than no less than there is no superiority or inferiority. And I just think our so much would be so different if we had those core beliefs intra intact. I think that's a great point. Um, 
there is, I don't know if you ever heard of this, something called the third factor. Hmm. And the man, no, it's not well known. I found it by accident doing research hmm. and it intrigued me because I think his name is Kazaworski. And he says, in his opinion, people always think, is it a case of nurture or nature? Was it genetic that you're this way, especially like with addiction? Was it genetic or was it your environment? <clears throat> well, I had both. I had both. I had genetics and I had the other. And he thinks there's a third factor. And that third factor is kind of what you're talking about. You know, excuse me, one second. Little voice issue. And he said that there's a third factor and it's that intrinsic work that you have for yourself, your core, that no one ever could touch. And you override those things. So I overrode my genetic tendency for alcoholism and the environmental tendency to make the mistakes I was making. And I found a way to go to college when I was 28 with two small children and mm. no child support. Mm. I found a way to become successful and do the things I wanted to do and help other people. So I really like that. If you ever get a chance to look it up. Yeah, right. Fascinating. That's right. And now that we understand epigenetics, but we also understand neurobiology, I don't think it has to be such a binary. Is it this or this? It We will not in our lifetimes or maybe future lifetimes for a while still understand the magical, amazing, quite complex interactions and interrelationships to um, it all. And the, yeah, it's when, when one has that piece and in my book, um, what I did was I would have a concept. So there's a, a little section on intrinsic worth within the wakefulness chapter on befriending self. And I would then have practice ideas because you, you can't just give people concepts. They need to put things into practice. That is actually how we build a new brain. And then I would throw in a story from the field and it would often not be me because it wasn't a memoir. It would be with my client's permission and aliases, often my clients. So my daughter, uh, who's now 31, 32, was reading that section and the client I chose had an absent father, classic, a classic story about why if I'm a little boy, I grew up not to know I matter to someone and that I have a worthiness that I matter at all, like a mattering classic story. So, and she was 25 when she read the book. So this was actually, she's 30 anyway. So mm -hmm. she said, mom, I struggle with that, but you gave me, you never said you're not worthy. You were never absent in my life. I don't have what classically people would identify with. And she said, if people read your book, they won't see themselves in this. And I said, well, would you be willing to be a story from the field? So she wrote also. So I have two stories from the field. My daughter's who wrote, I got all those messages, but I still struggled with, am I enough? which is both heartbreaking, but so important. So, yeah. you know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's not obvious. We can yeah. have a lot of those externals. 
Um, I actually think for people like you and I, who it's, it's obvious that we didn't get maybe some of those messages and some of our circumstances played into what's wrong with me. I'm not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but having to kind of fight for it, I guess that's the end of the story for everybody. However you come to, am I enough? Most people kind of have to take that to the mat. They really have to wrestle with that yeah, as a, as a, like right. that person is saying as right. the third factor. The third factor, I really love that because what you're saying is now we know that your brain is capable of changing, which means, you know, just every, and, and again, you need to um, want to find out what your purpose and meaning in your life is. Well, yeah. I, I think you need that because if you don't have a purpose or you don't know your purpose, what do you think? No, I'll, I'll show you. I'll tell you a really fun story that um, was some research I learned in graduate school. But the um, uh, the importance of the um, landing on this is kind of mine as a you know we can have a belief cognitively, Mimi, but wow. what a lot of people talk about is I can't feel it in here, and they'll point to their core, their body right? Their core. So we have to, it's not a mental process having intrinsic worth because, and here's another thing to mention to your listeners, if they are not aware of it, there's a thing called confirmation bias. So if I'm 14 years old and believe my dad left me because I wasn't enough, I didn't matter enough to him to keep him in our family, which is what happened. I didn't know that was happening then what we do, and you may have experienced this too with some of what you've been through, once I have a core belief, it doesn't matter. The mind doesn't really care in a way what the belief is, but it starts to just see confirmation of that belief. And it will literally select out contrary evidence. Like if I think the world is a dangerous place, I will see confirmation that the world is a dangerous place. If I believe the world is a safe place, I will have, and it's how the human brain works. It is not even our choice, but it's the frightening thing is the final thing is our brain will even create evidence so we can. So, you know, if your daughter found you to be the enemy at one point, she can even set you up, not beknownst to her, but unbeknownst to her. So that's how powerful the mind is. And that's my second aspect of wakefulness is freedom from that part of our mind where it is running the show and we are at the mercy of our thoughts. And again, not just our beliefs, but beliefs that are reinforced in the world so that they feel really hard to change. It's like life is like a blank screen and your mind is the projector. Exactly. We're projecting what we believe. And that's what, so that is what we're seeing. That's right. And that is frightening at this time in the world where there's a lot of othering and there's a lot of, I believe, fraught information. And I'm not being political here. I think there is just a way, if you believe it, you will see it. And then sadly, violence can come from that because then I do believe I have to protect myself in ways I don't start. I don't have critical thinking um, as easily available to me, which is a really, really important adult skill to have, especially in a dynamic world and life as, as many of us live. So we're so privy these days. Like when I was growing up, we didn't know everything that was going on. Now, you know, everything that's going on, whether you want to or not, 
You know? Well, and I I would go as far as to say the speed at which technology and our exposure to things that we have not as a species developed the kind of inner musculature for, like, oh, the war in Ukraine, and then this boat, um, you know, these people are drowning on this boat, and then we have a submersible, and then we have fires everywhere, that the human system, I mean, I, it is no wonder at a species level, the suicide rate is what it is. You know, mm-hmm. it's, um, it's too much. And we'll so I talk to people, yeah. right. It's about, well, how do you not live in your little bubble? Because you might be able to create kind of personal safety and, and uh, a great life because you know, there's these other things going on, but if you only live so exposed, mm-hmm. then it over, over, overcomes your own life. So it's really finding a sweet spot of how to navigate. Well, I think that's where um, meditation and things like that come in. Yeah. Because if I get, I tend to do too much. Um, I'm an overachiever. Not a surprise. You know, that's what happens when you don't feel loved and appreciate when you're a child. I was always a people pleaser. That has changed. I learned the word no, and I learned it's a complete sentence. (laughs) (laughs) And you say yes to something else when you say no. Yes, but I do I do a lot for my church and some nonprofit and my friends, and my neighbors, and that's okay. But I have I had to really teach myself when enough was enough and you know when it was taking away from my own self-care. So before we run out of time. So your book, River to Ocean, Living in the Flow of Wakefulness, I I bought that on Audible. Nice. And I'd start listening to it and when I bought it, um, it said something about if you buy this, there's a PDF or something you can download or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I couldn't figure out how to do that. Well, I can send you that and you oh, can good. maybe on your stuff put because um, put it's it mainly the tools. So there's a set of tools mm-hmm. as well as resources. Yeah, so that stuff is can be very handy where people are not having the physical copy of the book. Yeah, um, they still want hard copies of those. And I'd be happy yeah. to That'd share them great. with you. I will um, post it on my Facebook page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. This, this is wonderful. Oh, do you I want have... me to tell you your really quick story on purpose? Okay, the research? really quick. So they, in a nursing home, they had a control group and a non-control group. So they factored everything in. So these groups were very much representing the same thing. And with the experimental group, they gave them for $1.49, and these were elderly people, a plant to take care of for $1.49. And the, the health status, the mental health every day I need to make sure I need to take care of my plant. It was a dollar forty nine, and it just was so dramatically revealing that whatever that purpose is, whatever that is, we never age out of needing purpose and meaning. And do you think it would have? Uh, they would have felt the same way if it was free, if they gave them a free plant. Oh, they gave them the free print. It was more like, that's just how much it costs to change. You didn't need medication. You didn't need need more activities. You literally a dollar. Right. But there probably is something in what I said too. (laughs) Yeah, that's probably true. No, there is. That's another conversation. (laughs) You will be back. I will have you back because you're wonderful and and we can cover everything. 
Yeah. And I'm definitely going to set you up for the book club if it's okay. I wonder if I would love that. Please. Look ahead. I only do it once a month and it's just starting out. But thank you so much, Catherine. You're so welcome. This was wonderful. Really good care. It's love. Kindred spirits. I I believe that. And thank you for the work you're doing in the world, Mimi. Truly. Thank you. You too, Catherine. Thank you. Take care. Okay. 